ESG investing has reached an important juncture following impressive growth over the last few years. So what will come next on the economy's transition to net zero emissions? Here's what matters. Live from our respective coronavirus social distancing outposts, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Robert Sarenbetz. And this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we, the strategists at New York Life Investments, will share insights from the multi-asset solutions team, what we think matters as we manage investment solutions. That includes Mainstay's diversified portfolio series, including the Income Builder Fund, as well as bespoke solutions for our partners. By sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of February 7th, 2022. And today we're going to focus on one of your favorite topics, Robert, which is the market's transition to net zero emissions, climate change, and how that works its way back to portfolios. Great 2022 fault line outlook topic. That's right, Algie. I really do love this topic because there are so many interesting ways that we could take it and go about discussing it from the science of climate change to the regulation and combat of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to the innovations and the investments that can lead us down alternate paths to success. Yeah, it's it's there's really a lot of interesting economic and market topics within this topic. But let's just for this first episode, keep it relative to the 2022 outlook itself. So how can you know, the average investor think about this? Why is it important to folks, especially those that maybe don't care very much about climate change? And how does that all fit together with the pandemic and the market outlook and some of the things that, that we've been considering for this year? That's right. We saw a big rise in interest in ESG investing that was really kicked into high gear due to the pandemic as investors started thinking about these non-traditional risk metrics that could impact a company's performance or a portfolio of companies' performance. And so investors really began focusing in on ESG investing and what was good about it and bad about it and how we could transition to a more sustainable future as a nation or as a world. Well, I think the big question for the next decade is, you know, Will what you're describing, sort of this focus on green living, become such a powerful theme coming out of the pandemic and really change people's behavior? Or are we really just talking about changes on the margin and and what folks call greenwashing or sort of a haphazard commitment to some of these changes, particularly, frankly, among investors and, and how they invest? I would hate to think of it being greenwashing personally, but let's actually break it down and talk about the drivers behind the change and why we think that it's heading in the direction of true green living, true ESG investing, and not as much about greenwashing. Yeah, let's let's do it. I will just add here that for our listeners and for anyone that you work with in an, an investment environment, there's two ways to think about this. One is for folks that you know really care about green living and this sort of transition to net zero emissions. And one is because enough people care that it is impacting the investment environment. I think both are really important things to consider when you're setting investment strategy. So with that in mind, Robert, what do investors need to know about this transition? Yes. And before we jump into this, I do want to level set with our listeners. But even before our listeners continue on with this pod, maybe they could go back and jump into some of our previous episodes on ESG investing, 
so they can learn about the differences between impact investing or ESG investing and a lot of the nuance that goes into this terminology. Uh, that can be helpful for knowing how to position these types of investments for clients and for other investors. But let's jump in. There's really two things that our listeners less familiar with the transition to net zero need to know just to understand where we're going in this episode. First is that current climate policies will reduce emissions, but probably not quick enough to reach some of the international targets that have been set by global forces. Got it. So we're going to see incremental change, but on just strictly the basis of those international norms as they're set right now, probably more needs to be done. That's right. And then second, there's a strong linkage if you think about CO2 emissions and prosperity and standards of living. Basically, the richer you are as a country, all else equal, the more likely you are to emit uh, greenhouse gases. So if you want to make progress in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, there are some fundamental areas that these rich countries will have to focus on. And that's energy, which is like electricity, heat, transport, like the way things are made, how you get around. And then there's food and agriculture. So the, the way you use your land and how do you eat and what your agricultural system looks like. Okay, so while there might be tons of indirect impacts of this transition to net zero emissions, the couple of really direct impacts are to energy consumption and the way we produce food. Exactly. Very well said. And so there are a couple of ways that one can invest, if we think about the investment perspective, in changes of these two areas. And I'm going to name three here. The first is low emissions investments. So that's the pathway to producing zero greenhouse gases, either through the energy made or through like carbon capture technology. The second is contingent investments. So these are investments that enable zero emissions, but they require other changes in the energy system, like you were saying before. I think a perfect example of this is electric vehicles. They're only as good as the power that goes into the batteries. If the power that goes into the batteries is coming from a coal power plant, what's it really doing? So we need decarbonization there in those contingent technologies. And then third is transition investments. And I like to think of this as just efficiency boosts in the meantime. Uh, one of the major topics that our listeners might be hearing now on the radio is about how natural gas lines tend to be like inefficient and can send a lot of methane gas into the air, which is a big pollutant. Zephyr sounds like there's going to be a lot of opportunity with tons of asset growth in various areas. And hypothetically, at least, the asset management industry would play an important role both in the allocation of capital towards a more resilient economy, as I'm reading what you're describing, and then also in addressing some of the challenges related to these changes. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's just a ton of capital out there that will need to move into these improvements or investments or inventions and in, in our system. But I want to say that even beyond that, there's probably even more investment potential out there. And we've talked about this before. But even if we succeed in limiting greenhouse gas emissions, and there's still probably going to be some natural disasters out there looming, things that will require investment in projects to help us adapt to climate change, like rising sea levels or increased forest fires, so as governments and big institutions 
think about how they're going to, you know, rebuild infrastructure, there's going to be a lot of bonds issued to pay for these investments. And that can be another opportunity for investors. Got it. So let's put this level set it, put it together with a couple of ideas that you mentioned at the beginning of the program, which is, you know, how do we expect businesses and investors to respond to all these potential changes? Will they invest? Or is it going to be more surface level in terms of that investor impact? For our listeners, we'll use the term greenwashing here, which simply means when a company or organization brands something as eco-friendly, green or sustainable, when that's not actually the case. That's a great question. And Lauren, I think you should actually start us out with the corporate impact here, because you've talked so much about this tangible example being supply chains. And so I like to think about it this way. Will corporations do the investment to modernize their supply chains and move to net zero in, let's say, the next decade? Yeah, okay. I'm happy to take that because regulators and standard setters are proposing tougher rules for carbon reporting. And many companies are now already taking steps to understand their value chain emissions. And I do just want to say that that's not just because of regulators. It's also because in some cases, customers are demanding it. And so a lot of major companies have gotten out ahead of this and set net zero commitments. But some of those companies are more comprehensive than others in how they define net zero and the and the steps that they take to get there. But none of them can make a dent in their upstream supply chain emissions without getting their suppliers to follow suit. And so for big companies, sometimes they can do that, right? The suppliers really rely on that company and have to make the changes in order to keep the business. But you know, from my perspective, that business to business or B2B engagement could become one of the next frontiers of client influence. I think we're already seeing it in business operations. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I love the example you just gave about upstream supply chains. Basically, you know, you may know where your computer comes from. It's got the brand label right on it. But where did the parts come that go into that computer? And how sustainable were the makings of those parts? Which I think is a great transition then to greenwashing, because there's a lot of skeptics and idealists out there, both on both sides, that like to tout examples of greenwashing or social responsibility, where you know a company sets these commitments, but then doesn't really track down upstream or downstream changes. And the good news is that we see an emerging common vocabulary in the media and among regulators that should actually make everything more transparent. And I believe that transparency is some of the first steps to helping clarify choice. And that also includes ESG investment ratings. Right. So, you know, on one hand, we have how resilient is a company's supply chain? And you also have areas like, will their supply chain represent a material business risk? And those are different types of questions, but they can all make their way into the these ratings. Yes. And I think it's important to note that a decade ago, only a handful of investors really understood or even used ESG ratings in their investment process. But today, it's become much more commonplace. Investors, companies, the media all use them and expect them to answer a multitude of questions within their respective fields. So as we start to integrate more of these non-traditional risk metrics, these ESG metrics, we know that ESG investing will help to insulate capital from business practices that could prove harmful to investment returns over time. 
Yeah. And I just want to come back to one of the things that I mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, there are plenty of investors who maybe climate science or climate change, climate awareness aren't top of their list, but this is the direction that investors and clients are moving towards. And so investment managers, including ourselves, where we do have a strong commitment to sustainability at our firm, like even if that weren't the case, investors are starting to incorporate these questions and these ideas into their investment process. And if nothing else, it looks a lot like long-term risk management. Things like how might extreme weather events affect business operations? You know, do companies need more of a buffer to be sustainable investments over time? Can Harsh labor practices lead to higher turnover, higher legal costs, which impact profit margins. Is a business model reliant on scarce resources that can be disrupted easily and therefore disrupt their ability to supply their product to the market? These dynamics have always been important to company performance, but now there's just this big elephant in the room all the time, this climate element, which increases the chance of disruption. And in some cases, there's also externalities that could lead to higher costs, lower sales, and managing them accordingly may result in more attractive financial performance. That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. Please let us know what matters to you. If you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on social media. That's right. You can send us your questions or highlight what matters to you by finding us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views on our website, which is newyorklifeinvestments.com. And once you're there, you just click on the Insights tab. Yes, we have tons of good ESG-related content on our website that I'd encourage all of our listeners to check out. But until then, I am Robert Serenbetz. And I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. podcast is produced by Milo Benamonts, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I'll now read our disclosures from compliance. For more information about Mainstay Funds, call 1-800-624-6782 for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Investors are asked to consider the investment objectives, risks, and charges and expenses of the investment carefully before investing. The prospectus or summary prospectus contains this and other information about the investment company. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Impact investing and or environmental, social, and governance or ESG managers may take into consideration factors beyond traditional financial information to select securities, which could result in relative investment performance deviating from other strategies or broad market benchmarks, depending on whether such sectors or investments are in or out of favor in the market. Further, ESG strategies may rely on certain values-based criteria to eliminate exposures found in similar strategies or broad market benchmarks, which would also result in relative investment performance deviating. There's no assurance that the investment objectives will be met. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as of a specific date. It is subject to change and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances, and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. The mainstay funds are managed by New York Life Investment Management, LLC, and distributed by NY Life Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. NY Life Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.